We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Jennifer McQueen. Creating a crisis by not building enough homes is like trying to feed a family reunion with a small pizza. Ah. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, what he said. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right. Uh, yeah, uh, lots going on today. Uh, we'd love for you to be a part of it. Feel free. Uh, the mayors, more mayor powers, more mayor superpowers are coming. More superpowers for mayors to try to get the housing, um, the housing thing pushed forward. Uh, the Kelowna fires continue. Uh, more, uh, more proof. We got to get the world off coal. Also, the housing continues to be a, it's amazing how housing is now, like, we've known about this, we've talked about this for long before the global pandemic, when housing prices started to go up and people, uh, you know, people started buying houses as a form of, uh, as a form of, uh, an investment and such. And because there's a limited supply, if there's not much supply and there's a lot of demand, guess what you end up with? It's called a shortage. And I remember talking to one academic saying, you know, you can't build your way out of this. Well, yes, that's exactly what you do. (laughs) And that's exactly what the government is talking about in PEI. Climate change, I don't know, banning handguns, taxing the rich, all of those other really important liberal issues have fallen by the wayside. And now all of a sudden they're focusing on housing about eight years too late. Uh, at this liberal retreat. But what's really fascinating about this, and we heard this earlier, they're going to have, this started a couple of days ago, they're going to have an expert there. An expert's going to talk to them about housing and everything they need to know about housing. And this expert's going to come in and talk to them and, and give them some advice on housing. And then as I'm watching the news today and, and doing the research and stuff, I find out the the expert that they're having in to listen about housing, we have on all the time. And did most recently on the 17th of this month last week. And his name's Mike Moffat, Ivy League School of Business, Western University. University Western Ontario. He was on just the other day with us. And we're asking him. And he's filled with all kinds of great common sense ideas on what they should have been doing years ago. And what they should be doing moving forward. And as we have presented Mike Moffat to you many, many, many times over the years, the government's just getting his phone number. Government's just realizing that this guy's got something to say. So uh, with that in mind, I got Major Tom to go back into last week's show. And here's what Mike Moffat said, not to the prime minister, but to all of us. And we can throw around a lot of numbers, but I, I think it's important to put them in context that we do need to build at least 1.5 million homes in Ontario uh, over the next decade. Uh, we haven't even built 750,000 in any 10-year period since 1973 to 1982, mm. which basically exactly mm. coincides with the television run of the show MASH. So that's the, <laughs> the uh, challenge in front of us, that we need to do something that we haven't done in 40 to 50 years and then double it in the same time span. So this is going to take some massive, massive effort uh, on on behalf of everyone, not just governments, but industry as well. Mike Moffat from Western has been saying that on this show for years. For years. 
years, long before the pandemic. And now the prime minister's just uh, invited him in for a meeting. The prime minister should be listening to the Scott Thompson show. Because that's where the experts are that can help you get out of this mess. But he's not even listening to you. So how is he going? Why is he going to listen to me? He never comes on the show. As he Paul, should. <laughs> Pierre Polyebra has been on at least four times. Jugmeet Singh, at least half a dozen times. Prime Minister, he was on once when it was our birthday uh, to wish us a happy birthday. That was when I first got here like 20 years ago. That's the only time the Prime Minister's come on. The Prime Minister clearly needs to listen to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson because that's where the experts come out and that will eventually teach the Prime Minister a lesson. The students teaching the teacher a lesson. Isn't that funny? So uh, Mike Moffat on with uh, uh, the news earlier on today saying the exact same stuff that he has been setting on this show forever. So the prime minister is going to call him in and say, hey, Mikey, what can we do for the housing? And one of the things that Mike Moffat said uh, here and on TV just a few minutes ago was, kind of stop coming up with this crap that takes forever and micromanaging it and nothing getting done. Cut the red tape. Build like you've never built before. Man, the prime minister is going to be doubled over in pain when he listens to what Mike Moffat has been telling all of us for years. He's going to be, he's going to be wincing and wheezing in pain, hyperventilating. He won't know what to do. He'll have to go to Jugmeet Singh for an answer. I'm in the traditional media, so I'm kind of at odds with this one. But I, I really think that uh, the prime minister is overplaying his hand. Uh, many think that Facebook is overplaying their hand. Some think that both are overplaying their hands. Um, but you might remember that uh, uh, the prime minister uh, put a bill in front forward C-18, which basically said um, that anybody who posts content on Facebook from news organizations, Facebook has to pay for, which is not their model. They don't create content. They're an information highway. You put users, put the stuff up there, and off it goes. Uh, that's not their business model to pay for content. So they've said, well, it's bugging everybody. We're just going to drop it. So we won't, we won't drop it at all and or we won't use it at all and or allow people to post so um at, at that point now with the fires that are blazing out of control in british columbia uh the prime minister is saying that people can't get information and that um, uh, facebook is putting money profits before safety and demanding that they put this content back on after he demanded they pay for it I don't know. Suck and blow comes to mind, and I know the intentions might be good, but this just sounds like a lot of government overreach to me. And now we're in a heck of a bind because this isn't helping. It's hurting on both sides of this ledger. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Great to be back. Carmi, I know you have a little bit of a different opinion on this than I just expressed, but what are your thoughts and what I'm and what I just said and and pick it apart? What am I what am I thinking wrong here? Uh, no, I, I think we may be more on the same side than 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 we think. I, I think, frankly, the government did overplay its hand. I think the government probably approached this wrong. I think there was a, an inequity that social media came along, changed the rules of the game, necessitated some kind of shift 
so that we could continue to have funding formulas that work. That was the original intent of the Online News Act, Bill C-18, to allow revenues that used to go to traditional media that now go to social media to at least in part go back to the organizations that are creating the journalism that we rely on level the playing field. So the intent was right. I think the way they went about it probably could have been a little bit more, let's call it refined or nuanced. And we now find ourselves in this pickle. Uh, and of course, Meta could have done the right thing, could have backed down from going dark on Canadian media at a time of national emergency as wildfires bore down on cities, chose not to do that. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, we can rage back and forth on who's at fault. I think Canadians have a choice here. Canadians should just look at social media, shrug their shoulders and go, you know what? We've been using social media to consume news content for the better part of the last 10, 15, upwards of 20 years. And it really isn't the greatest way to consume news content. We need to change our ways. And I think if Canadians recognize that social media just really shouldn't be the, the tool that we use for this kind of purpose, use social media for something else, sharing pictures of what we had for breakfast, I don't care. But as far as news is concerned, that's not the way that we should be going about it. I think this is our opportunity to leave it all behind us. Instead of complaining, oh, Meta, you should do right by us. We should just say, you know what, Meta, thanks very much. You had a lovely run in Canada. Time for us to move on. Goodbye. That's what Canadians should be doing here. Social media isn't the tool we should be using for news in times of emergency or not. I agree with that. Do you think that'll happen? Uh, you know, it all depends on how willing Canadians are to change their habits. We've become lazy. Let's face it. It's become really easy. You know, back in the early days of the commercial Internet, say the mid 90s, late 90s, early aughts, the way we consumed content was really simple. We went to a website, we bookmarked it, we sort of saved it in a, whatever place it was in our browser, and then we just kept going back to it. And then as time went on, obviously, along came social media and changed that. And now instead of going to websites, we just follow them on social media and then watch the content show up in our feeds. The problem is that social media has become increasingly choked with, with ads, with artificial intelligence, content that we never bothered asking for. It's been harder and harder to find the news. And so we, we, we sort of got lulled into this, you know, well, it comes to us in my Facebook feed, so it's just really easy. We got lulled into that, and we've needed to change this for years. This is the catalyst for us to do that and say, you know what? Forget Facebook. I'm not going to go back to bookmarking my tool, bookmarking my websites, downloading the apps that of my favorite news organizations, putting them all in a folder on my smartphone so they're all in the same place, taking charge of my media consumption activities, and then I, I no longer need to worry about or rely on an algorithm to decide what I see. I decide what I see. That's where we should be going. And I think Canadians it'll will be slow to wake up to it. But I think if we recognize that, we can make a really positive change and ultimately tell Mark Zuckerberg, you know what, we really don't need you anymore. It's interesting to see too, Carmi, that new news organizations are now trying to sell that, like they did when the internet first started. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because I mean I've been following the commercial internet since you know, my my career in technology began a little bit after that, right? So you know, I, I, I've been doing this for a long time. And I remember at the time, a lot of traditional media organizations looked at the internet with fear. They said, oh, this is going to cannibalize our business. And a lot of them delayed setting up websites. Uh, they would, they would uh, you know, for example, newspapers would, would put the content in the newspaper first and then publish the website all later on so yeah. they wouldn't cannibalize sales of newspapers. Well, I think we now, we realize that was a mistake and they're finally buying into it. And, you know, 20, 25, 30 years too late, but the way I see it, better late than never. And I'm glad they're finally getting on the digital train. Unfortunately, right, me, they had to go, go through some hardship to get here. Let me throw one more thing at you, Carmi. Okay, so yeah. why would Facebook 
pay for content that other people post. Instead, say, you know what? We're the information highway. You want to be on this. You got to pay us a toll (laughs) to ride the information highway. Does that not have as much logic to it as what the government's proposing? Sure, it does. And and if there had been legislation governing how the Internet worked from the beginning, then maybe the, the power imbalance wouldn't be as significant as it is today. Maybe the big mm. tech companies in the U.S. wouldn't have as much power as they do. But here's the thing. You know, the Internet came along in the 90s. Governments in the U.S. and Canada basically shrugged their shoulders and said, yeah, we're going to figure this out. You know, we're going to see how this Internet thing plays out before we decide what kind of legislation we're going to apply. So, you know, take the broadcast regulation model and apply it to Internet. They didn't do that. And so what ended up happening was big tech companies kind of made the rules up as they went along because no one was telling them what to do. That's the problem. We're trying to undo three decades of successive governments on both sides of the border and around the world, in fairness, basically doing nothing to regulate the Internet. And they allowed people like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and whoever else to make the rules uh, to their advantage and our detriment. That needs to change, too. And something we can learn as we all discuss artificial intelligence. Uh, we're out of time here, Car- uh, Carmi. We'll have that discussion later. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, uh, talking about uh, news content on social media. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great being here, Scott. Thank you. So here we are in a situation uh, with energy and um, and un, um, uh, unaffordability, uh, rising interest rates, uh, trying to uh, control the environment. We're obviously seeing what's going on uh, out west and such. So uh, constantly looking for new and and exciting ways to to uh, get off of fossil fuels and move forward and uh, and help save the planet and and sometimes. That means um, just, you know, tuning up what you may have done 100 years ago, 200, 300, 400 years ago. Uh, innovations uh, are, are now being uh, seen in the shipping industry. We've all seen those giant barges and, and, and cargo ships that come in and out of Hamilton Harbor. Well, imagine being out on Lake Ontario and seeing one put up sails, but not something you might have seen, you know, a couple hundred years ago. A total high-tech sale. And to talk more about this, Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business at McMaster University. He's here now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Glad to be with you. I'm watching this report last night, and I'm thinking, my goodness, this is a brilliant idea. Why, why didn't we think of this uh, sooner? But does it work? Is it efficient? Is it cost-effective? And that being uh, putting some sort of modern sale on uh, today's cargo ships. Right. So as you... As you know, the old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. And Mm. right now, given the climate we have, uh, necessity is to say, how do we wean ourselves from fossil fuels or conversely, make better use of those fossil fuels that we are burning? And so lots and lots of businesses are out there innovating. And in some cases, innovating means going back to technologies that we had abandoned at one time to see if we can come up with a new version. So in this case, The the story is not a lake-going vessel, but an ocean-going vessel between continents. And they're saying, is there a way to improve the efficiency? And so they have this high-tech sail. Uh, It's not a wooden mast and those lovely cloth billowing sails that we imagine Columbus deploying. These are very high-tech kind of sails with a metallic mast as it goes. But the idea is to have that 
energy added to the energy generated by the ship's engines, and they think they can save maybe 30% on the amount of fuel that they're burning, which of course is, again, great news for the environment. You're going to hear dozens of these stories over the next four or five years as people, in some cases, go back or in other cases, go forward and come up with other new ideas. And all I would say to you is, as you're listening to these, ask yourself which ones you think will survive. These are experiments. No one knows for sure exactly what's going to happen. In my mind, what worries me is what happens when that ocean-going vessel hits a gale or a hurricane? Will they want those sails deployed or will they want to pack them away? It could cause them more harm than good. But unless we continue to innovate and experiment, we'll never know for certain. I, I said these were ocean-going vessels. The problem on lake vessels would be, how do I get you under a bridge? So right. we, we use our lakes, but in between, we've got to go under bridges to enter Hamilton Harbor. You've got to go under a bridge. And so what is the height of these? How are they designed? They might not necessarily work on the Mississippi River or on the, on the lakes. But again, between continents, oceans are quite broad, empty spaces, probably worth trying. Uh, from what I've seen, uh, these are apparently giant hydraulic mass, which will go up and down in, depending upon the weather or the situation that they're in and just lie flat along the top of the boat. The one thing I was concerned about, I mean, you're talking about Columbus and those that sailed the ocean blue and such. Uh, you, you know, you go back to the blue nose and, and different schooners and such. Right. These were quite modified uh, and, and, and aerodynamic vessels, for lack of a better word. A cargo ship is just a great big honking barge that's sailing down the earth you know across the ocean with loaded with containers or or with coal or or hopefully not coal that would sort of it doesn't it defeats the purpose uh, but any you know grain whatever grain. let's go with grain like is 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 this feasible that wind can carry can can propel such a weight it, it is although keep in mind this is not a 100 percent wind-powered vessel so the idea yeah. is to supplement it in a way it's no different than uh, putting up a weather vane and, and harnessing the wind power and have it added to the other power that you might be using in other ways to reduce your overall consumption. And I guarantee you, Scott, uh, you're talking in this case of a, like a sail on a sailboat. But remember those windmills, those delightful things we think of in, in Holland spinning mm. or uh, even a water-based mill to help grind grain. I guarantee you there are companies looking at those technologies again with modern versions to say, is there a way to supplement what we're doing using harnessing those technologies as well? So you're going to see some throwbacks. You'll probably see something new. Uh, but all of this is because of the necessity to move us from a carbon-based economy. And really, is that not what we've done with electric vehicles? <laughs> they, they were invented a long time ago. In fact, some of the first vehicles uh, that were created at the turn of the last century in the 1890s mm -hmm. and early 1900s were electric. but gasoline at that time seemed to be the better way to go forward because of course at that time we viewed the environment as something that we could dispose things into so this is what happens as we mature as societies uh what were solutions in one generations become problems in the next and we have to innovate but i guarantee you there are literally dozens if not hundreds of companies i i have to tell you as i was looking at that story i kept thinking i wonder what elon musk would do confronted with this God knows he will come up with some variations on this. Some of them will be laughable in hindsight. Some of them will fail spectacularly because people will forget something. But others might, might change the way we do things forever.
And you think of the number of cargo ships that cross oceans, uh, you know, any given year, uh, this could make, this could have an impact. You see it as being feasible. Uh, is yeah, it just absolutely. a pie in, is it absolutely. pie in the sky right now? No, no, this is absolutely feasible. And again, remembering, we're not saying the ship will be 100% powered this way, right. but it will be an assist that reduces the demand on others. It's a bit like with airplane designs. The airplanes of today fly long distances, but they use less fuel because of the design, the way they've designed the wings, the way they've designed the plane. They have found ways to become more efficient. And this is another vote in this land of efficiency. If we supplement supplement our power through the sails, it's going to do more for us. Now, you know, I got thinking when I looked at it too, what about trains? I wonder if they could deploy a sail mm. to help push them across the country from side to side. You know, there's all kinds of these kinds of things. Now, I, I'm not an engineer, so my technical knowledge is quite poor. But these are the kinds of questions. How might we? How might we do something that leads to innovations? Uh, you have to wonder if uh, other industries are watching this. You talked about the number of industries who are, and I've said this to, to the kids and younger generations, that although we've gone through a global pandemic, it's it's like the Industrial Revolution. It's, it, it, we're going to look back at this very historically. Things are definitely changing. But do you see this moving forward as something that uh, uh, a new world uh, could could uh, could use? Is, is this the sort of thing in open-mindedness we need moving forward? Yeah, let me start this the second half first. We have to be open to any possibility out there and, and not get wed to the fact, well, that's not the way I've been doing it for the last 10 years. Okay, yeah. here's a new way of doing it, whatever it happens to be. So we do have to be open-minded. And also, we can't be too judgmental. Let's run some experiments. Let's see what happens. There's another old saying that failure is not the enemy. Failure tells us that that idea won't work, but it could lead us to a better idea down the road. So you have to have that kind of idea. But having said that to you, much like uh, the way we lived in the 1950s was quite foreign to someone in the 1890s, the way we're going to live in the 2050s will likely be quite foreign to someone who was raised in 2000. These things evolve over time, and as one technology will supplant another one as we go. Marvin Ryder, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Cargo ships with a sail. Could it be? Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. Yeah, I know. Hard to believe. Uh, August 22nd, kids heading back to school soon, including to university. And, uh, you know, we've recently talked about the university housing situation and the shortages there as well. Uh, also, an avenue for scams. Uh, that's something you have to think about. Students starting the school year encounter a lot of responsibilities and, and, and a lot of it is, some of it can be overwhelming and a lot of the things that come flying your way aren't necessarily as, uh, honest as you hope they would be. And there are people out there trying to take advantage of that. Let's bring in Tracy Dallaire, McMaster's Director of Information Security and here now. Tracy, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great and thank you for having me today. So normally when we talk about scams, a lot of the time it involves seniors, but this is in regard to students. What sort of scams are we seeing at the student level? Uh, thank you, and, that's, uh, and I appreciate you uh, bringing this to people's attention. So for students, uh, new students or returning students coming to school, these are major life events, major events during the time of year. So threat actors will look for opportunities potentially um, when the students want to do a transaction such as 
getting their um, books for school, looking for accommodations, uh, trying to add courses, drop courses. Um, these are the times when um, students may receive things that will attempt to uh, get the student to fall for a scam. So uh, is this usually involving like a third party as opposed to the school itself? I mean, is that something, a tip, for example, we can use, uh, you know, to, to try to uh, protect ourselves against this? If you're doing this sort of thing, it involves the university per se, not necessarily another person or party. Yeah, it's very, this is coming from third parties, people outside the university. Yeah. Um, it could be a, a place offering a service. And uh, it could also be um, groups that might send an email or a text, but they try to make it look like it's coming from the university. We call those spam or phishing emails. And um, so we give a lot of advice to students uh, proactively and those people that work on the front line with students of what to watch for. And if they do think they've come across something, we ask them to take a pause, don't click on it. And we have a number of service areas students can reach out to. And we can check for them. And so, and, and this and this involves everything from housing to even discounts on tuition. I mean, it it it, yeah. it it spans quite a list of things. It's not just one or two things here. Absolutely, absolutely. It's every way in which you know, thinking in the minds of the the threat actors of ways that people are doing transactions. They have money. That's what they're after. So they're looking for ways to have a person part with that money in some way. And so it's all the things like buying books, paying tuition, where you're going to stay, your accommodations. Those are the things that the threat actors are after. And uh, uh, getting parcels as well. I think we've all seen that in some way where hmm. we receive something saying you have a parcel, but you got to pay some money in order to free it up from where it's being sent. Those are the kind of things that um, those scammers are after. And they can do it by email. They can do it by uh, chat groups you might be involved in, or uh, SMS text messages that come to your phone. So they're looking for every avenue, and they keep trying, and they just need a few hits, and that's how they start to make their money. All right, so any tips, Tracy? What what should students be uh, looking out for? And this could be anything from returning students, uh, first-year students, international students. I mean, does it? Uh, everyone, really, it, it could be a victim here. Yeah, absolutely. And watch for those things like the emails, the text messages, the uh, if you're on some kind of a chat media uh, community, if you're getting offered something that seems too good to be true, possibly and probably too good to be true. If it has a, a link to click on, please don't click it. Pause. Let us know. We have there's a lot of contact information on McMaster's website where to reach out to, and we can go in and look at those and and help the student. Um, so yeah, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is, and um, Pause, reach out. There's lots of people around McMaster to help you out. Uh, that's good to know. And, you know, it's funny when you read stories on this, many times the people who have been scammed, they did kind of think, well, you know, this doesn't seem quite right, but, you know, went for it anyway. So it's trust that gut feeling, right, and ask. Absolutely. Trust your gut feeling and, and just be super cautious about it. And we have a lot of people, resources lined up, ready to go. Uh, to help. And if you're not sure, just ask and we can help out or get you directed to the right people to help out. So trust your gut. If you're not expecting something, something looks a li little bit odd, um, just be extra cautious. Take a pause. 
um, ask about it and seek out for help, and we'll, we're there to help. We, we, we expect that these will happen, and we're all lined up ready to help. All right. Uh, if it looks too good to be true, probably is. And really, all you have to do is inquire, ask. Just do a little bit more investigation uh, if you're heading back to school. Tracy Dallaire with us, McMaster's Director of Information Security on student scams that are back this September. Tracy, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Good luck back to school. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, uh, we've been sleeping, I- I'm guessing, as long as, well, we've been walking and, and, and awake, yet we constantly ask questions about sleep and, I guess, try to get avoid get around or avoiding actually doing it, uh, whether it's naps, coffee, or what have you. Interesting article in the conversation. Uh, a coffee or a nap make up for sleep deprivation. A psychologist explains why there's no substitute for shut-eye. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Kimberly Fenn is with us, professor of psychology, Michigan State University, and here now. Kimberly, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you so much for having me. Kimberly, how can we keep having this discussion? Because you'd think we just know the answers to this by now, because I'm sure it's been studied to death, and it's not like we haven't been around for a while. Well, that's absolutely right. Um, but I think that, you know, in this day and age, individuals have lots of things they want to do and lots of ways to fill their time. So, you know, if you can sacrifice one thing, sleep seems to be an easy way to do it, to, to pack your day in. So um, we're sleeping less and less as time goes on. And it has you know, profound effects on physiology and cognition. You know, I've, 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 I've listened to people, and this is maybe not the way it is so much now, but certainly the last 10 or 20 years. You know, I only get a four or five, six hours of sleep a night. I'm up at four. I'm at the office. I'm doing the work. I'm working out. I'm pumping iron. I don't need sleep. I need, you know, is, is, is that accurate? Uh, when does that catch up to you? Well, I mean, there is some evidence that some people – don't need as much sleep as others. So um, we call these short sleepers. So there's um, research going on looking at like the genetics behind that. So there are some people and some famous people um, who only need five or six hours of sleep, but the vast majority of people need more like seven and a half to nine hours each night. And what about the nap? Uh, I remember doing morning shows over the years where you get up at like three o'clock in the morning, whatever, and then um, you'd try to have a nap during the day. But I found that I was always tired. And whenever there was a flat service, I was napping on it. Uh, Is that the way to go? Um, Absolutely not. Um, Now, I will say that if if you have a night where, you know, you're in the emergency room or for whatever reason, you, you aren't able to get the normal seven and a half, right. eight hours of sleep. A nap in the middle of the day is great. It's actually really restorative and it can help um, improve your cognitive performance and actually improve your mood. Um, but if you're habitually not sleeping enough, then you get into what we call a state of sleep restriction or sleep loss or sleep debt. So, um, you know, you accumulate sleep loss each night you don't get enough sleep and you never can really make up for all of that sleep loss. I was just about to ask that as well. So if you go a few days without any sleep and then you spend the next couple of days just crashed, does that help? Does that make up for it? Yeah, all of the research seems to suggest no, and that you never really make up for the loss of sleep. And you wouldn't sleep that much, right? So 
Um, if you went, we'll say, three days with no sleep, so you've accumulated a sleep debt of 24 hours, you wouldn't then sleep for 24 hours straight. You might sleep 10 or 11 hours the next night and maybe 10 or 11 the following night, but there's always some debt that's accumulated because you would never sleep, you know, for, like I said, 24 or you know, even 18 hours straight in normal situations. Uh, getting back to the nap, is there a, a time limit for the nap? Is, it, there, is there a point where it becomes unproductive? Yeah, I, I think um, there's varying research on this and, and varying opinions on, in sleep researchers. So um, I always say that, you know, a short nap can really be restorative. So like a quick 20-minute nap can often be enough to sort of boost your performance and boost your mood. Um, the problem with the longer naps is that they'll affect your sleep on the subsequent night. So, you know, if last night you didn't sleep too much or sleep enough, and then today you go to sleep at, you know, three o'clock and you sleep for two hours, that's going to impair your sleep tonight. So to keep a healthy sleep schedule, I think that the shorter nap is actually the most beneficial. Is it, if you do want a nap, is it a sign that you're doing something wrong? Um, oftentimes, if you do want to nap regularly, it means you're not sleeping either enough at night or well enough. So sometimes, if you're habitually sleeping during the day, it may indicate that you have some underlying sleep problems. So, um, for example, you know, sleep apnea is quite common, um, and there are many people walking around who have sleep apnea, um, and it's undiagnosed. And the only way that they'll often go to a, a specialist is because they're so sleepy during the day. Uh, talk a little bit about sleep apnea. What is it? How does it affect us? How do we fix it? Yeah. So there's a couple of different types, but the most common type of sleep apnea is called obstructive sleep apnea or OSA. And in obstructive sleep apnea, your airway actually closes. So um, it's usually because of um, extra skin or visceral fat in the neck area. Um, and so it's most likely to happen when you're lying on your back or in the supine position. And essentially, all of that extra skin just pushes back and literally closes your airway so you're unable to breathe. And so people with sleep apnea will stop breathing hundreds of times across the night. And as you can imagine, it's very, you know, you know can be very damaging to cardiovascular function, um, obviously respiration, um, and, and has, you know, early mortality and morbidity. Um, associated with it. How do you know if you have it? When should you go looking for this? Yeah, so most often, I think people realize they have it because um, their bed partner will realize that they wake up in the middle of the night gasping. So if you ever wake up in the middle of the night and you take a huge breath, like, <gasps> oftentimes that means you've woken yourself up or your body has woken you up because you've gone a substantial amount of time without sleeping. Um, and again, if you're you know, habitually tired during the day, um, that could be an indication of an underlying sleep problem or an undiagnosed sleep problem. Um, and of course, um, obstructive sleep apnea is highly um, correlated with obesity um, and diabetes and other health risks like that. So um, people who are overweight are more likely to have it. What does those, what do those machines do for you? Yeah, so um, the CPAP machine, um, so everyone has heard CPAP, but um, what it stands for is Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. And all it does is um, literally inject air through your airway, um, and it's titrated to, to your body. And so it continually pushes air through your airway so that the airway cannot close. So even when you're lying on your back, 
even if, you know, your your neck muscles or your, your neck um, skin and, and tissue wants to close that airway, that air, because it's constantly going through, leaves just enough of a space so that you can breathe in and out. Who would have thunk sleeping could be so complicated? Uh, Dr. Kimberly Fenn with us, professor of psychology, Michigan State University. There is no substitute for a good night's sleep. Kim, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The premier has bestowing more powers on regular mayors. What's a regular mayor and what's more powers? Who wrote this? Uh, and, and now they're transformed into strong mayors with superpowers. What does that all mean? Uh, what is the reason for it? And is anybody using any of these powers yet? Let's bring in Andrew McDougall, Assistant Professor of Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Andrew, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Always a pleasure. Andrew, uh, explain what these powers allow a mayor to do that they couldn't before. Well, they, they do a couple of things. Up until sort of last year, mayors in many ways were essentially the same as as ordinary councillors to to a very large degree. And this was, you know, sort of reflected in the Municipal Act. But the, the province decided that it was in their interest to give the mayors some additional powers that they wouldn't otherwise have, and in particular, uh, with some assistance in, in, in guiding provincial priorities. So, I mean, among other things, uh, it gave the, the power of the mayor to propose a budget uh, that, uh, you know, they would be able to supervise and, and pre- present to, to city council. Uh, gave them more flexibility around hiring and dismissing senior managers, so more control over the city administration. And it gave them the power to veto certain bylaws that were passed by the council. And then in a subsequent uh, Bill 39, uh, it gave the, the mayor the power to pass uh, bylaws so long as they matched with provincial priorities with uh, one-third of, uh, of of the council. So it gives it gives significant powers for to the mayor now to present a political agenda and to get things through that they wouldn't otherwise have had to do before when there was a more sort of consensus-driven pattern of, of municipal governance that existed. Obviously, there's a housing crisis, and that's the reason, main reason that these have, put in, have been put into place. How does this help the housing situation? Yeah, it's a, it's sort of a controversial kind of back and forth sort of discussion around this. There are there are some that would say that essentially what the the province is trying to do here a little bit is to um, you know is to sort of deflect a little bit from provincial responsibility here and saying that look this is as much a municipal issue as it is anything else. We're going to create incentives for cities to get on board with provincial priorities. But, you know, there are going to be some unpopular things that they may have to do in terms of development, zoning, and so forth. So we're going to empower the mayors, and we're going to give them a little bit of, of money to, to pursue this. But really, you know, this is, is a lot of the heat is going to, going to happen around the, uh, the municipal councils, uh, which they may not otherwise want. Um, but, I mean, of course, there would be this argument that, you know, on the other side, that a lot of the housing crisis, in the eyes of some, and it's controversial, may arise from things like municipal rules surrounding land use. And essentially, mm-hmm. the strong mayor will be able to uh, do a little bit more uh, to sort of free up some of these restrictive bylaws to aid in the in the housing crisis. Now, there's others that come back and say, look, the housing crisis in Ontario is a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot of things that are going on. It involves many jurisdictions. Uh, you know, it's a little bit naive. But, you know, people who really go back and forth on whether or not these, these strong mayor powers are really required and really whether or not they're going to, to solve the, the problem that they're, they're really 
out to address here, which in this particular case is housing. With every, with all due respect, Andrew, to everybody involved, and it is a complex issue, but the initial problem is quite simple. Nobody has built enough homes, and now that's created a crisis because there's a high demand, as there always has been. This is not a new problem, and it is a self-inflicted problem, uh, and there's a very, very high demand. So now the reasons for that can be very complicated, but at the end of the day, there just simply hasn't been enough housing built. Um, at the end of the day are there mayors that are actually using any of these powers that they've been given have we do we have any examples of that as yet well they're very new i mean they only came in within the last year or so um and there's now the intent to sort of start rolling them out uh to some additional cities and they're quite controversial some of the cities uh that have been uh announced that they're going to be getting these powers uh the mayors said they don't want to use them that they would prefer to use their consensus based method of governance uh, that they've been using up until now, even whether or not they get them or not, right? And it's up to the province to give it to them. I'm not familiar of any specific examples recently since they've been rolled out um, that, that would, but they're part of the uh, today's announcement is to announce some incentives for the mayors to start using them a little bit more. So there's this new fund that is being introduced uh, to assist mayors that to use these powers in line with provincial priorities to build houses and if they meet their targets, then they're going to be able to access some of these funds. So it's still kind of early days with some of these powers. They're still controversial, but it looks like with today's announcement that the province would really like to see the mayors to use more of the powers that they're getting uh, with the uh, with the legislation. Andrew, I heard uh, I had a, a pundit on the other day and said that this was the hottest political issue in Canada right now. Um, my guess is this is going to be a very hot political issue for a number of years to come because this problem's not going away anytime soon. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think housing is, a, if, if not the top, it's certainly in the top three uh, issues, certainly here in Ontario, but really across the country. And I think that's connected a little bit as well with the cost of living uh, crisis that we've seen over the last couple mm-hmm. of years with high inflation, right? That's certainly been driving a lot of the agenda. Uh, but we certainly see, you know, Toronto, Vancouver, some of these other markets have gotten very, very high, uh, you know, problems with um, affordability, very large problems with affordability when it surrounds housing. And it comes up continually. And you see the Trudeau government uh, getting into some trouble the last uh, couple of weeks when, uh, you know, just the suggestion that Trudeau made that maybe this wasn't entirely his top priority or he wasn't, this wasn't the file that the federal government mm-hmm. was most responsible for. Got a lot of pushback from people that suggested that maybe he could be doing a little bit, bit more on this. And it's been, you know, a real concern uh, for, a lot, for the last couple of years. So, I mean, I think that this is definitely, if not the top, certainly one of the top few issues that Canadians are focused on. And you see this in the way that politicians are spending their time. Have politicians now realized that? I mean, I go back to the last Ontario election when all four main political parties said they were going to build over a million homes, which I don't think I have ever heard that in my entire life uh, out of a out of a political campaign. Is this now an issue that politicians are now confronted with, but realize they have to deal with this now? Yeah, they're certainly aware of this as a problem, but I mean, in in their favor, in their defense, it is ultimately a very complicated issue. And it's one that cuts across jurisdictions, as the strong mayor's power issue demonstrates, which is, you know, you need all three levels of government kind of on board to tackle this. So it's not like any one particular order of government could simply, you know, wave its hand and make this problem disappear or simply create all of the homes that people might want or otherwise tackle the affordability crisis. 
it really is a multi-jurisdictional problem, and there are many different causes behind it. So it's, it's a very challenging issue for any politician to go to tackle because they just don't have the powers themselves to make the whole thing go away. They're going to have to work with other levels of government to solve it. Has build become a bad word over the last decade or two? Sorry, has what become a bad word? Has build become a bad word over the last decade or two? In terms of building new houses? Yes. I mean, you. I think that depends on. Uh, I think that that depends on who you ask. There's no doubt that there's uh, a political crisis around uh, building new houses. That's certainly something that politicians are facing. But how you're going to go about doing that, where you're going to go about doing that, that's where things start getting very, very complicated. Right? We've seen with the uh, fight over the green belt and the decision, you know, on where they're going to build and where they're not going to build, this can explode into a very significant issue because there are many different interests at stake. And, of course, you always run into sort of local concerns about where the housing is going to be built, what types of housing are going to be built. Uh, these can become quite emotional quite quickly. So I think, uh, you know, the nuances kind of depend on who you ask. Uh, has the Green Belt fueled this discussion? Because many say, well, you don't need to go into the Green Belt. I've had many experts say there's 20 to 40 years worth of, of land available before you even have to do that. But that has been unavailable, hence creating the shortage as well. Is it now forcing these discussions? I mean, I think it's part of the discussion for sure, right? Uh, I, I, this is part of the fallout of the Auditor General's report, which is, you know, the suggestion you know, that she's making that the process that was followed on why some parts were going to be developed and were not did not follow, you know, a transparent process, right? And that the developers were overly, you know, involved in it. And part of the narrative that you've seen from the provincial government is uh, a recognition that there were some problems with that process. They're going to implement uh, the majority of the recommendations that were made. But I mean, the lie is also that more housing here has to be built, and that parts of the green belt are places where you should build it and that, you know, you're going to need to find the land to build all of these houses and the Green Belt is a place to look at it. So, I mean, that whole discussion is, I think, part of this whole issue surrounding housing. Andrew McDougall with us, Assistant Professor in Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto, talking about uh, mayor's powers. Andrew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Liberal cabinet retreat is in full swing in PEI, and they're having one of our favorite guests, Mike Moffat from Western University, uh, give them a lesson or two uh, on housing, which is unfortunate the Prime Minister doesn't listen to the show because we've been talking to Mike about this for, my goodness, years now. And the number one issue is now housing, not saving the world, not handguns, not whatever. It's now housing. You know why? Because Christia Freeland says so. We recognize the need for more housing. Where were you were before the where were you before the pandemic? Uh, where were you when everybody was buying up stuff as investments? It is bizarre how this government reacts to the problem du jour. Alyssa Freeman, PR pop culture expert with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am, Scott. Thank you for having me on. Can you do nothing about housing but promise it in the uh, great things back in the 2015 election? And now uh, Christy Freeland saying we recognize the need for more housing. This is a totally self-inflicted problem, and now it's their main concern. How do people respond to that? You know, governments always have their own priorities. Sometimes they tell us what the priorities are. Sometimes they articulate them in a government platform or an election platform. But then sometimes getting around to them doesn't always necessarily happen, especially when they may not even have the right answer or the right type of execution. So here we have the retreat of the caucus to talk about 
things to talk about things before a house resumes. I think it's on September 18th. So, Scott, you and I have talked many times about this, but we've talked about the notion of optic. So, are your MPs lounging by the cottage or in their backyards? No. They are going to be in Charlottetown talking about an agenda about things that will hopefully give Canadians some sense of confidence that the wheels are turning, that the wheels are moving in the right direction. Uh, we were talking last week uh, about the new uh, Pierre Paul Evra ads and uh, just mm-hmm. how everybody now wants to hug them. I know you do, Alyssa. And um, so now we're hearing <laughs> we're hearing rumors that there's a new set of ads about to come out, and there and there are clips of Justin Trudeau since 2015 talking about what he's going to do, great things with housing, and uh, of course nothing accomplished. Your thoughts on moving from? The, hey, get to know me to, look, this guy has said all this before. Well, it's all part of a strategy. And one of the things that you and I did talk about is that after this first tranche of ads has been running, and they've been running on repeat, they've bought a ton of ad time, the Mm -hmm. get to know me on Pierre Pierre Polyab ads. Now it's time for for the second second phase, Scott. So you can't keep running and running an ad before people really start to tune out. So they feel that their reach has been achieved. So now what? Well, now you come out with something that isn't so nice, that's a little bit more attack, that has a little more of a a bite to it. And this is not an old strategy. Every political party that's in the opposition does this. Liberals have done it to conservatives. Conservatives have done it to liberals. And uh, since the beginning of time. So now this is when you start to look at all the promises that haven't been kept and you start hammering away on those. So it'll be interesting to see, Scott, Number one, what they think the liberal pain points are, because there are many, which they choose to concentrate on. And will they hone those messages as they do their polling um, afterwards and during the ads to see what resonates with Canadians? And then stage three of the ads, which will keep going ad nauseum until an election is called or until, you know, they run out of fiscal money, will be really honing in on those negative uh, narratives and making sure that they really hit home to Canadians. And the one thing that we're going to see, Scott, is it's going to center around one thing. Maybe the second tranche will have like a number of pain points, but as we get closer and closer, there will be one narrative that keeps going on and on and on to make sure that it sticks in the minds of Canadians as they walk to the polls. All right, so I'm watching today the news coverage of what's going on in PEI. Uh, the Prime Minister's there in his jeans, and somebody introduces him to a little, uh, uh, I'd say a toddler, probably about two or three years old. Uh, the mother goes to give the toddler a toy. Instead of the toddler taking it, the Prime Minister takes it. He sits down on his hands and knees, and he starts playing with the toddler. Have we had enough of that yet? I understand probably why they're doing not. it. I understand. Probably not. I understand why he's doing that, and I know I know uh, women love that. But at the end of the day, uh, that's not jiving with everything else that he seems to be um, way behind on. You know, when it comes to times like this, you sort of fall back on your base. And what does your base like? And what does your base like about you? And what does it believe? So when you have uh, the prime minister sitting down and playing with the toddler and the toy, he knows likely that he has a large base of women, a large base of women with children who have voted for him in the past. 
So they're not going to deviate from that narrative, Scott. They're going to double down on it while, you know, they are a little bit behind in the po- They are a lot of bit behind in the polls. So remember, some of the things that you see, you may think, well, that's just ridiculous. Why are you doing that? But the real reason is, is that he's playing to his face. Is Pierre Polyevra now beating the prime minister at his own game? Well, you know what? I, it, it's, it's a game as, the, as old as the end of time, really, Scott. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not as if you know, when, when he started doing the glow up of Pierre Polyev and they, now he has a hair, you know, his hair is like in a flow, mm. similar to our prime minister. A lot of people are saying, you know, yeah, it's all about the hair. So they sort of uh, doubled down on that when they were up against in the last elections ago and people laughed at it. But it kind of rang true. So now they're going back to their old playbook and saying, well, maybe it is about the hair. So, <laughs> you know, so they give Pierre like this whole new look. And yeah, a lot of it's about the hair. So, you know, there are pages of playbooks that, that politicians and political parties co-opt on their own. And sometimes they're su- successful with it. And sometimes they're not. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, talking about the Liberal Cabinet Retreat in PEI and housing, the main focus uh, at this point. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, remember all the uh, allegations of uh, election interference from the Chinese Communist Party? It seemed to be all the talk for a while. Uh, 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 former um, uh, uh, for, uh, David Johnson, former um, <laughs> former big guy in charge of the government, governor general, that's it, uh, was appointed and, you know, a very dignified man uh, and such. And uh, many say uh, um, left his career in shambles when all of a sudden he decided to step away from this. Then there was chatter that there should be a public inquiry about all of this. And then it kind of went away for a while and uh, they started working on it, I guess, with the opposition parties. And we'll see where we end up. Uh, let's get an update here. Bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He is with us now. Duff, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you. Hope you are as well. So, Duff, before we get to the actual public inquiry, um, earlier on this week, Elizabeth May, uh, we remember that the Liberal government said, anybody who wants to see this top secret information, you can sign a security clearance. You're more than welcome to. Um, The Conservatives and the Bloc said no because they couldn't report back to the public on it. Elizabeth May and Jagmeet Singh took them up on that. We haven't heard anything, at least I haven't, from uh, Jagmeet Singh on on his impression of that meeting or if he's had his yet. Elizabeth May had hers, and she said, I don't know anything more than I knew before, because uh, so much of it is 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 incomplete or or uh, retracted in some way. So, um, Duff, what are your thoughts on these two individuals getting the security clearance, seeing it, and then their response? Uh, it doesn't sound like, um, <clears throat> from what I've seen, Jagmeet Singh has actually um, had the access to the materials. Yet, but Elizabeth yeah. May said all she saw was a, a 25-page summary, um, not the thousands of documents that uh, that uh, David Johnston reviewed. And even he said he looked at a small lake out of an ocean of documents. So there's many more documents to um, be showing to the opposition party leaders. That was the deal. And if uh, the Trudeau liberals are going to play games on those kind of deals, I think they're going to get in, be in even more trouble than they're in already. 
All right. Yesterday, uh, the prime minister questioned on the interference inquiry. Uh, he said it's moving forward. Public safety minister Dominic LeBlanc has said Ottawa is nearing the final stages, uh, working with the others to come up with uh, this inquiry. Can you give us any sort of update? What do we know? Well, uh, we know that a list of um, possible people to head up the inquiry could be one or could be a multi-person commission has been sent by the opposition parties to the Liberals, and that there also terms of reference uh, have been sent by the opposition parties to the Liberals. And so, you know, the game continues, unfortunately. Um, Liberals, I think, were hoping that the opposition parties would not be able to agree on a, a list of people or on terms of reference. And that's the, uh, the game they tried to play earlier in the summer by saying they need uh, agreement amongst the parties. Their bluff was called, and now it's back in their hands. And they're just looking worse and worse the longer they delay. It just smells more and more uh, that they're trying to cover something up. And so uh, we'll see. Not a lot of people uh, pay attention to the news in the last two weeks of August with a lot of people on vacation as pay attention uh, when September rolls around and especially when Parliament opens on the 20th or so of September, uh, it's going to get worse for the Liberals unless they, they move, just like it did with David Johnston. Uh, worse and worse for them, and they, hmm. they finally rolled over. But that's that's the way Trudeau does things. You know, back in the SNC-Lavalin scandal days, he said uh, seven different things that were false about what had happened. And then he said an eighth one that was spent. It, it was partially true. And he resisted you know, seven times over months and months with false statements about uh, what had happened in terms of uh, the prime minister's office and others in the cabinet pressuring the attorney general, Jody Wilson-Raybould. And uh, it just got worse and worse for him. Many have chatted uh, uh, in the Liberal Party that this should do this should uh, cover more than just Chinese Communist Party election interference. Will this be diluted to include every country or countries like Russia as well as China? Uh, is that a good idea? Should we not just focus at the at the issue at hand, which is election interference by the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, well. Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leaders, also suggested expanding it. And I don't really see a reason not to. When you have people testifying, like people from uh, CSIS, from the Privy Council Office, from the protocol panel that's been set up, um, all handpicked by Trudeau, to supposedly, and people all serving at the pleasure of Trudeau to be supposedly preventing foreign interference. When they're testifying, why not just have them answer about all the incidences of foreign interference and attempts that they've been dealing with, not just the the Chinese uh, interference uh, sponsored by the Chinese government. Uh, Will that that not dilute things? I don't think so, because if they say no, we haven't really seen attempts um, from other countries Mm. or they haven't been as frequent, then that will be Mm. reported. It's not going to take them much longer. Uh, when they're disclosing documents, they might as well disclose everything so we get a full picture. The inquiry commissioner will be reviewing the documents. Um, it's, I don't think it's going to take them that much longer to review some more about some other countries. And uh, 
you know, as far as we know from reports, Russia has been uh, attempting to interfere almost as much as China. So why not have an inquiry into all of it? What I think needs to happen, though, is we need to look at the facts in terms of the, the Trudeau cabinet's response. What did they know? When did they know it? What did they do about mm-hmm. it? But we also should be, at the same time, looking at policy changes because these policy changes need to be enacted before the next election, which uh, the latest, the next election can happen is fall of 2025. We're already into fall of 2023. And to get a bill through Parliament usually takes uh, six months to a year. So I don't think we need to have just hearings on the facts. And that could go on for a number of months and then turn to policy. We should be looking at policy right away. And, and maybe the best way to do that is just to strike a special committee in the Senate and the House and have them uh, look at policy while an inquiry commissioner looks into what happened in the past. Jeff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, with an update on where we are with a public inquiry. Uh, public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc saying that uh, Ottawa is nearing the final stages to set that up. Duff, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. Happy to talk again as we see more developments. Take care. Will do. Interesting article in the Globe and Mail from Tony Keller, editorial page editor with the Globe and Mail, and also draws attention to uh, the international student situation. Many have talked about, well, we're, you know, what about immigration? We're talking about a half a million uh, over the next uh, couple of years uh, and, and not enough housing to go around. Um, also in this issue is students who come here to study and obviously not being able to uh, obtain housing. Uh, I want to read you just a couple of paragraphs of Tony's article. Over the past two decades, the number of foreign students studying in Canada has increased almost sevenfold to more than 800,000. The jump has been particularly sharp in recent years. At the end of 2022, there were nearly half a million more visa students than in 2015. At first blush, this sounds like a success story. Foreign students clearly believe that they're paying for something that offers a positive return on the investment, but what are they paying for and what are they getting? Also, what are we getting? For many international students, what they are buying is mostly not education, and what many or most schools are selling is not education. A big part of what is being bought and sold are public goods, the right to enter Canada, to legally work, and to get a uh, track on citizenship. That's the latest uh, by Tony Keller in the Globe and Mail. He is here to talk about this article. Tony, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. Great to talk to you today. It's interesting, Tony, that uh, after we started talking about housing and, and, and running the numbers and such, um, uh, immigration is an issue, but uh, student uh, international students is as much of an issue. Uh, are, are universities doing enough to house these students? Uh, mostly not, and, and I, I don't know how they could, given how much the numbers have increased. And the, the one thing you got to understand is that mostly what I'm talking about here is not university students. I'm mostly, the, the numbers are mostly college students, and a lot of them are going to private colleges, including private mm-hmm. colleges you've never heard of. They're kind of just fly-by-night operators in some cases, or they're fly-by-night operators that are now associated with a public college, and they're allowed to uh, accept students and offer courses that are barely supervised by the provincial government. And as such, those students are allowed to apply for student visas and usually get them because the number of student visas, international student visas that Canada will give out 
is unlimited. And um, exactly what else is going on beyond that is, you know, it's a bit of a black box. It's a bit of a mystery. All we really know is that the numbers of people coming in are enormous. Uh, I just looked at the number of people going to post-second, the number of foreign students going to post-secondary education in Ontario has increased 18-fold since mm. the year 2000. Um, and a lot of those people are, some of those people are going to universities. They're going to really good programs. That's great. They're going to be uh, future Canadian citizens, and it's fantastic they're here. And on the other hand, a lot of them, that's not at all what's happening. They're, they're coming here to drive Uber Eats. Uh, you talked about other parties involved in the recruitment process being liaison between the student and the college or university or what have you. Is this the big issue? Are, are, is it these types of organizations uh, that are taking advantage of people? No, I think actually it's the schools themselves that are taking advantage of people. And in a way, one of my points was they're actually, I should say they're, they're not really taking advantage of people. I mean, the, the only people who don't seem to understand what's going on are Canadians and the Canadian government. I think, you know, my sense is that both the students and the schools understand what they're doing. Um, uh, really good schools are offering excellent education. And there are other operators that are not really offering much education, but that's okay because they're offering these foreign students a chance to come to Canada, to work in Canada, uh, and to get on the ladder to getting Canadian citizenship, um, which is really what they're paying for. But strangely, they're not paying the Canadian government. They're not paying Canadians. They're, they're, they're paying a college tuition for what may be kind of a, you know, not particularly reputable or useful uh, educational credential. Is this all about making more money for the institutions as they receive more intuition from international students than they would those living here? Yeah, that seems to be sort of the driver of it. And Ontario's uh, sort of the, the province where this is happening a lot. Um, so Ontario does not fund uh, colleges particularly well. The, the per student level of public funding to Ontario colleges is the lowest in the country. So they've got an incentive to go out and try to find other sources of funding. And so that's what a number of different Ontario colleges have done. They've they've gone out and they've done they've 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 put out sent out student recruiters to foreign countries, mostly India. They're trying to bring in lots of students. And um, they're also doing deals with private operators. So for example, Mohawk College in Hamilton has a partnership with a private college called Trios College. And uh, they've got a, a new campus inside the Square One Mall in Mississauga. Not really a campus. It's some classrooms inside a shopping mall. Um, and it's exclusively for foreign students, as far as I, as far as I can tell. Uh, again, whenever we're talking in this linking to housing shortages and such, um, we, we refer to immigration. How has this gone unnoticed uh, and just the sheer numbers? And we're hearing this with students anecdotally that are coming and getting ready for school this year. And there just isn't enough, uh, services, uh, uh, housing, whatever for them. Um, how do you get a handle on this? How do you, how do you, uh, uh, well, first of all, you got to talk but this issue is, is, is probably greater than the immigration issue, is it not? So it's connected to immigration. What, here's another thing that most people don't realize, is that Canadian immigration is now often a, a, a two-step process. The first process is you come to Canada as a temporary foreign worker 
or a foreign student who in many cases is also really just a temporary foreign worker. You spend some time in Canada, you accumulate some work experience, and then you apply to immigrate. So you're not immigrating from a foreign country. You're immigrating from Canada. You've already been in Canada for, for a few years. So that's one of the reasons that the foreign student route is so popular and has exploded because people have figured out, people from overseas have figured out, if I come to Canada and I do a credential, maybe it's a very legitimate credential, maybe it's a complete bird course, but one or the other, I'm now in Canada. I have the legal right to work while I'm studying. And with certain of these programs, you also acquire the legal right to work after you're finished your studies. Well, all of those things accumulating, working in Canada, Canadian experience, a little bit of Canadian educational experience, pushes you up the ladder on uh, your, immig- your immigration application and mm-hmm. your ability to, to, to um, be approved to immigrate to Canada. And that's, that's the driver here. So what needs to be done, Tony? How do you address this? So Sean Fraser, the, 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 who was the immigration minister and who's now the housing minister, said something today that shows that at least they've finally woken up to this. He said, you know, maybe we need to cap the number of student visas. That would be a really good start. Because as I said, right now they're unlimited. Uh, as many students as schools can attract, that's the number of student visas Canada's gonna, Canada is going to issue. So, and, and as part of that, uh, Canada and the province of Ontario and the other provinces have got to be discerning. We should say, listen, we want good students to come here. We want people to go to McMaster and do a master's degree in engineering or go to medical school. What we don't really want is thousands and thousands of people doing some nine months semi-bogus credential in a strip mall somewhere and really they're, you know, they're not going to end up doing a high-end, high-wage job that is going to benefit them and is going to benefit Canada. They're going to come here and they're going to deliver Uber Eats or they're going to mm-hmm. flip burgers or they're going to stack boxes in a store. That's Surpr- the reason they're coming here. We only got a few seconds left, Tony, but are you surprised they're talking about a cap on international students, but they're not talking about capping immigration? Is that because the numbers are so different? Uh, well, it's, it, as I said, they're, two, they're officially two separate streams. They're yep. really, really closely connected. All right, Tony Keller with us, editorial page editor with the Globe and Mail, and the latest, uh, liberals broke the education visa system, but they had lots of help. Tony, interesting read. Thanks for the time. Be well. Great to talk to you. Take care. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. The Prime Minister clearly needs to listen to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. And the reason the Prime Minister needs to listen to this show, um, because one of the experts that he's invited in to talk to his cabinet at the PEI retreat on housing, that's the, that's the crisis du jour today for the Liberals. Not saving the planet, uh, not abortion, not handguns, and no, no, it's housing today. And, uh, they, they're bringing in this, these experts, and we're thinking, well, We've had Mike Moffat on the show a bazillion times talking about this exact same thing. So, and just last Thursday. So we're going to rerun this interview to give you an example of what Mike Moffat is trying to teach the prime minister today, something that he's been teaching us for years. Listen, talk about the education sector. What role does it play here? Well, it uh, helps on both the uh, supply and demand side. So uh, the higher education sector, you know, trains uh, workers, and that's everyone from the skilled tradespeople, uh, electricians, plumbers, roofers, sheet metal workers, and so on, that we need to build homes 
but it's also a big portion of housing demand uh, these days. So we've seen large increases over the last seven years in international student enrollments, uh, particularly at the college level, more so than the university level. Over the last seven years, uh, college enrollment is uh, international student enrollment at our colleges is up 240%. And we've built almost no student residences. That's an extra 80,000 international students in Southern Ontario, all who need somewhere to live. And that's creating uh, tensions in our rental markets. It's uh, bidding up rents. And on the ownership side, we're seeing a lot of uh, single family homes getting converted into student rentals, uh, making it hard for first time home buyers to find a place to live. Uh, we often talk and in, in hear about how the increasing immigration levels are putting stress, but we often don't include this sector in that discussion, do we? No, we, we don't. And that's it's an important distinction to make that uh, our immigration system uh, has a target of a, just under 500,000 people a year. But our population is growing by over a million. And the difference is a variety of what's called non-permanent resident programs. So that's not just international students, but that's uh, groups like temporary foreign workers and so on. They were not included in our immigration targets. And in fact, there's no target whatsoever. And that makes it difficult for municipalities to plan. If they don't know five years from now how many international students will be coming, how many temporary foreign workers will live in the community, it's hard for them to figure out what to do on housing, let alone transit and uh, building enough schools and all of the things that we need to, to make a community work. You bring up a valid point. Uh, I was talking to a pundit earlier this week and said that housing is now the, the biggest, the hottest political issue. Um, uh, I asked, will this not be the hottest political issue, the, the biggest concern, as well as affordability and such, moving forward for the next few years, five to ten years anyway, as we try to catch up? I, I believe it will be. So, you know, barring any uh, large international events, I think housing and the broader issue of affordability is going to be massive. We're, uh, we have so many young people who cannot find a home, uh, you know, want to raise a family but aren't able to. And we have a lot of seniors in homes uh, in, in, their, in their houses who would love to be able to downsize and find something more appropriate, but there's just nothing on the market. So overall, it's affecting a wide swath of the population, and those, those people are going to vote. And I, I think they are looking for candidates at all uh, orders of government to, to help solve this crisis. We certainly all know about the Greenbelt uh, debate and, uh, and, and those that are opposed to it uh, uh, to oppose to the nibbling of the green belt say there's still 20 to 40 uh, years worth of houses to be built I've had many experts tell me the exact same thing how about however uh, has this debate brought to the attention that well why isn't why is there a shortage then why have we not built something on this 20 to 40 years worth of supply yeah absolutely and and we look at that uh, in the report and 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 look at solutions so and there's a number of things that that's going on that uh, the the approvals process is, is a challenge at all three levels of government uh, for instance, there are thousands of apartment buildings uh, with applications at the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation for uh, construction insurance um, that haven't been approved so that's one bottleneck. There are financial bottlenecks as well. So particularly with higher interest rates, there are a bunch of projects that just don't uh, make economic sense right now. 
But they could if we did things like uh, remove the GST and HST on purpose-built rental construction. If we introduced the type of tax credits we had back in the 60s and 70s to build apartment buildings, we could uh, make more of these projects viable. So there's a lot of different things happening, a lot of different bottlenecks to to construction, but the the solutions are out there. And and it will take a wartime-like effort to get the, uh, the levels of construction we need, but I believe it's possible. Uh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, I've, I've said this many times, the last provincial campaign, all four parties were saying we need to build uh, homes north of a million, a million five and such. Um, is this going to, is this need going to get more attention? It's getting more attention now. We're seeing all levels of politicians now admitting that this is a, a problem. But are we really going to see many who have, have, have shuttered these ideas now turn around and say, well, we got to do this. We got to do this. We got to do this because it's 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 a self-inflicted wound here. It it really is. And I feel like that the conversation has changed in the in the past uh, few weeks that uh, politicians at at all three orders of government are taking this more seriously. And we can throw around a lot of numbers, but I I think it's important to put them in context that we do need to build at least one point five million homes in Ontario uh, over the next decade. Uh, we haven't even built 750,000 in any 10-year period since 1973 to 1982, mm. which basically exactly mm. coincides with the television run of the show MASH. So that's the, <laughs> the uh, challenge in front of us, that we need to do something that we haven't done in 40 to 50 years and then double it in the same time span. So this is going to take some massive, massive effort uh, on on behalf of everyone, not just governments, but industry as well. That is Mike Moffat, professor at uh, University of Western Ontario, housing expert. We've had on the show many, many times and today gave a lesson to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And you've just heard a sample of what he would be hearing today, something that we've been hearing for years and years and years here on the show, as we've had Mike as a guest uh, several times saying basically... The same thing that he just said uh, last Thursday, what you just heard, and I'm sure is going to say to the Prime Minister, we're going to try to get him on tomorrow to hear what he actually did say to Justin Trudeau. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Trudeau must be listening to this show, Scott. If he's not listening, he's doing prime ministering wrong. 